I don't know how to convey to you my pleasure at being invited to speak to you to come visit your college for the last 45 years. I've been keeping tabs on Thomas Aquinas from afar and uh, trying to convince Larry that he should convince somebody to bring me down here and give you a talk. Uh, so here I am, uh, and I hope I can carry you along a little ways before my voice gets tired. I seem to have a frog in my throat. <laughs> I was invited here to give again a lecture on the plague of frogs, and I am quite happy to do so. But I found I could not restrain myself from steering you towards the only true object of my readerly affections, the gospel according to Mark. I have found in my recycled lecture, this, a hook, I think sufficiently strong, on which to hang a few short remarks about a perplexing feature in Mark's gospel. Those remarks will come at the very end. Meanwhile, we'll deal with frogs. I think this feature in Mark's gospel would have been recognized by the author of the book of Exodus. It is a trick, writing a story that goes up to something and then, as it were, hops and then continues, walking, not hopping. To the careful reader, the trick gives a few signs that there is something going on between the lines and that it is the reader's job to stop and figure out what he or she is missing. It is something of a combination of two ancient rhetorical figures Apasiopesis and enigma. That is to say, it's a puzzling breaking off into silence. That will be my true topic tonight. Do not let the noise of the frogs distract you. All right, Exodus. Recall, Joseph, rejected by his 11 or 12 brothers, ends up as a bureaucrat in the palace of the pharaoh of Egypt. His brothers, seeking help, eventually relocate to Egypt where they prosper. After a few centuries, times get rough. The God of Israel raises up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt and back to the promised land. Pharaoh, however, refuses them an exit visa. Plagues follow, designed to show God's power. In high school, I read a book about Exodus in an intro to the Bible course. What I most remember about that book is the method of source criticism. This powerful method relies on the possibility of dividing up the book of Exodus, indeed the first five or six books of the Hebrew Bible, into snippets, sometimes less than a verse long, 
either according to what name of God appears in the verse or in the context of the verse, or according to certain tendencies evident in the particular verses under scrutiny. Scholars typically recognize four sources, a Yahweh man, an Elohim man, a priest, and then the man or men who also wrote the book of Deuteronomy. Our sophomore and sophomoric textbook devoted the inside covers to a four-color coding of the entire Torah according to source. I was fascinated. Studying the chart carefully, I felt myself informed by the very latest in biblical science. And for that reason, I found no reason to actually read Exodus. <laughs> Multiple ways of reading Exodus exist, of course, but almost no respectable rhetorical critic, reception history scholar, reader response, structuralist, deconstructionist, feminist, post-colonial or post-modern theorist countenances the unitary hypothesis, the assumption that one man wrote the book, probably a man. Uh, a soft version of the unitary hypothesis does command some respect in academe. An editor, scholars call him the redactor, put together the documents that the four sources produced. But alas, this redactor was either very careless or overworked or not very bright. He left visible signs, traces of his editing, gaps, contradictions, redundancies. When we read carefully, they say, we can see both the scissors marks where he cut up his four sources and the glue he slopped on to paste the pieces together. But on the assumption that a redactor had the final hand in our text of Exodus, which I'm not really going to dispute, was he perhaps, according as the modern reader reads carefully and well, rather than clumsy, perhaps something of a genius? Some of the apparent contradictions might be intentional. That is, they might serve a literary purpose. Some gaps might not be accidents at all, but invitations to and occasions for close attention and resultant delight. So I'm not about to argue against the four source hypothesis or in favor of the unitary hypothesis, though I think you should know they are out there. I'm going to ask us to pay close attention to one particular place in the text of Exodus where someone might reasonably claim that there is a gap in the narrative, a hole in the text, a place where something is missing, and that this hole is evidence that Exodus has not been put together well. I am going to try to convince you, readers of Exodus, that you are supposed to notice this gap and you are supposed to be able to fill it in. It is something like a gap 
it is nothing like a mistake. I will make a confession, it being Friday, a good day for confessing. I have an ulterior motive in this. I think there is a truly significant gap, deliberately constructed, twofold, in the Gospel according to Mark. And I think I know what we should read there. And so after I get done putting the frogs to bed, I will ask you to look at a small section or listen to a small section of the Gospel according to Mark. And I will tell you a secret. Okay. All right. To start with Exodus, I want to contrast two distinct kinds of readings. Reading between the lines, where there is nothing written between the lines, and connecting the dots, or reading some lines but not reading the lines between them. This is surely harder for me to say than it is for you to understand. I will confess to having a second confession, to having recently looked at a commentary on Exodus, the ankle Anchor Bible Commentary by William H. C. Prop. He's particularly useful because he collects the Hebrew wordplay of which Exodus is full. Uh, it's a language of which I am by and large ignorant. He offers an example of possible wordplay. In the second plague, the frogs are said to swarm in and to come up out of the river. The Hebrew verb translated swarm and the verb here represented by come up have already appeared early in the book of Exodus at verse 6. Joseph died, but Israel's sons bore fruit and swarmed and multiplied and proliferated greatly. Props translation. And a few lines later we read that the Pharaoh was afraid lest they come up and fight against him. When we get to the plague of frogs seven chapters later, we might realize that our narrator was earlier hinting at the point of view of Pharaoh. The Hebrews themselves were a swarm something like a plague of frogs. Now, I offer these lines as an example of connecting the dots, as an example of wordplay, but they are really no such thing unless you think a single intellect had the two places in mind and expected us, his readers or hearers, to remember these two verbs when we saw them again, seven chapters later. If the first use comes from one writer and the second from another, and they appear together in the same book only because the editor was half asleep, we superior readers will laugh at the accidental assimilation of the Hebrews to a plague of frogs. So, is this an accidental simile or an intentional, deeply buried piece of literary play? The thesis that it is intentional comports happily with the unitary hypothesis obvious. It, that hypothesis requires a writer who expected at least some readers poring over the text from start to finish 
perhaps even committing it to memory. At the very least, we should become such readers before we reject the unitary hypothesis. So get to work with your Hebrew and memorize Exodus. Now, reading between the lines is different from connecting the dots. An example might save me a thousand words. Moses, again. This time in the court of the Pharaoh of Egypt, doing what the God called Yahweh told him to do. And this is on your handout. I'm going to read lines five and six. Yahweh said to Moses, Say this to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, the canals, the marshland, and make frogs swarm all of the land of Egypt. Six. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. All right. There you have two lines, two successive lines with no text printed in between them, in my Bible at least. Can we read something between them? Indeed, we must read something between them. I'll give you a clue and then pause for a bit. Why did Aaron stretch out his hand over the waters of Egypt? Moses said to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, the canals, etc. You get the picture. Oh, this is something we do all the time. We are supposed to use our common sense, our reader's skills, and our imagination to fill in what I'm calling a story reality to achieve an imaginatively continuous and causally connected sequence of action. I think that in this case, the story reality of which the actual written story delivers only a part, goes like this. You've heard it already. Yahweh said to Moses, say this to Aaron, stretch. And then Moses said to Aaron, stretch out your hand. So Aaron stretched out his hand. Okay? You got it. Very good. A. For so far. There will be a quiz later. Uh, I'm not kidding. Okay, the expansion, the insertion of that line does not interfere with the explicit, written, unexpanded account of Moses doing as the God with the elusive name demanded. And it doesn't have, face it, any great significance. But that is not always the case with what happens between the lines. At any rate, whether the expansions are significant or not, we often have to read between the lines and we do so perhaps without even noticing it because we are in some way writing between the lines and reading our own writing. The writer or writers of the received text expected that we could do this and would do it. We read badly, poorly, if we don't read between the lines and fill in what we are expected to fill in even if that infilling is the filling in of matter that does not really much matter. The challenge is, not every filling in is as easy as this one. Not every filling in keeps the wheels of the story going around and the plot moving forward. Sometimes significant story reality takes place between the lines.
Okay, line seven. What happens next? Anything between six and seven? I think not. Line seven is, but the magicians did the same with their witchcraft and made frogs swarm all over the land of Egypt. Nothing needs to be read between six and seven. But what's with line seven? It's funny. Or the deed it recounts is funny. It's like the game we used to play as children. I, the older child, say to the younger sibling, everything I say, you say you did twice as much. Okay? Okay. I ate a chocolate chip cookie. I ate two chocolate chip cookies. You see where this is going. I ate a bowl of ice cream. I ate two bowls of ice cream. Then the conclusion's something really yucky. If you're tender-minded, you might want to stop your ears. I ate a slug or a frog. Now the younger player, the victim, can either play the game or quit. It is, in the calculus of children's games, a lose-lose situation for the younger or less wily child. This is something like what Aaron has done to the Pharaoh's magicians. It was okay at the beginning of the contest. Aaron threw down his staff and it turned into a snake. The magicians threw down their staves and they turned into snakes. No problem. But here Aaron has tricked them. Aaron makes frogs come up and cover the land of Egypt. The magicians, focused only on doing Aaron one better, make more frogs come out the river. <laughs> In fact, they make them swarm out of the river. Whose side are they on, anyway? <laughs> One might ask if it's their witchcraft that makes them stupid. <laughs> are they so focused on employing their technology that they pay no attention to its effects? At any rate, to get the humor, we may have to pause and think a bit but I do not think we need here to supplement the sequence. So, no reading between those lines, but some judgment is needed to read the line rightly. We need judgment or we will not laugh at the stupid Egyptian magicians. <laughs> we need, probably I have to say this, we need to read in context. Maybe we need to connect some dots to reach back to the opening lines in which we heard that the far-sighted Pharaoh foresaw a day when the Hebrews would come up and swarm over the land. So, connecting the dots and sometimes something in between the lines, sometimes nothing. Here's another example of humor. And this is the central piece of evidence for what I have to say tonight. Consider the situation after Aaron and the magicians have done their worst. All the frogs, both those summoned by Aaron and those summoned by the stupid Egyptian magicians, I love that phrase, I guess, it's fifth time, are hopping around, swarming the land of Egypt, infesting the palace of the Pharaoh, crawling into his bed and hiding under it. Here's where Moses repeats his great line. Moses asks, warns Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses offers Pharaoh some kind of challenge. Pharaoh responds. And then, my text has it, at nine, Moses answered Pharaoh, 
take this chance to get the better of me. What's going on there? This challenge breaks the cyclical spiraling telling of the plagues. It should have been a heads up for the Pharaoh and for us. Moses then asks Pharaoh, what time is he to fix for the frogs to leave Pharaoh and his subjects and their houses and stay in the river when he, Moses, prays on behalf of Pharaoh and his courtiers? Not one to rush things, the Pharaoh says, tomorrow. A curious response. Why not ASAP if not sooner? And Moses says, it shall be as you say, the frogs will go from you and your palaces, your courtiers and your subjects, they will stay in the river. Now comes a line, the like of which has not appeared in the telling of the previous plague. I will give you the line and the two lines that come after. You read between the lines, there will be a quiz. Twelve. When Moses and Aaron had gone from Pharaoh's presence, Moses pleaded with Yahweh about the frogs with which he had afflicted Pharaoh. 13. And Yahweh granted Moses prayer. In house and courtyard and field, the frogs died. 14. They piled them up in heaps and the land reeked of them. Here's the question. It's multiple choice. What did Moses plead with Yahweh to do? A. Moses pleaded with Yahweh not to send the frogs back into the river, but to have them die in place. Moses is cunning. Like Abraham in Egypt, he lies when it suits him. And it suited him to lie to Pharaoh about what he, Moses, would pray for. B. Moses pleaded with Yahweh to send the frogs back into the river, but Yahweh, on his own reading into Moses' heart, had them die in place. <laughs> this God, Yahweh, sees into the heart and grants the prayers of our hearts, not, or not necessarily, the prayers of our lips. C. Yahweh is clearly a joker. He heard Moses' sweet and sincere prayer that the frogs depart and stay in the river, but incensed at Pharaoh, he said, No way, Moses. The frogs die now where they are. Moses, nice guy, asked for the frogs to go back into the river. God thinks to himself, If I kill them where they are, they will pile up and stink. This will be a sign and a wonder, and the Egyptians will fear my name. Frogs, you are toast. <laughs> So if you're keeping track, that's answer C. This seems to me, I'll give it away, an unlikely reading, not that the God of Israel is not capable of what must appear to some, at least as fairly malign acts. Um, what makes C unlikely, and the other two possibilities, A and B, more likely, is that line that Moses uttered to Pharaoh. Moses answered Pharaoh, take this chance to get the better of me. When I pray on your account and for your courtiers, etc., what time am I to fix? Take this chance to get the better of me. Why is Moses taunting Pharaoh? Why is Moses suggesting to Pharaoh that he fix a time 
for the departure of the frogs. The warning, then the misdirection. Moses has something up his sleeve before he goes to God, whatever he ends up praying. Add to this the double curiosity that Moses asks the Pharaoh to set a time for the frogs to depart, and Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Just as Pharaoh delays from one day to the next the departure of the Hebrews, so does God here delay the, the departure of the frogs. At Moses' insistence or on his own? It is as if God is saying to Pharaoh, if you do not let my frog people go, they will infest your palace and your bedrooms and then die in place and make a great stink. A third tip-off that we are in the realm of the gap and the puzzle, that is a literary puzzle, the vagueness with which the narrator cloaks Moses' prayer. When Moses and Aaron had gone from Pharaoh's presence, Moses pleaded with Yahweh, we don't get any record of what he said. Moses pleaded with Yahweh about the frogs. He leaves it open. The joke needs exactly this vagueness or there is no joke. Now, these three clues, three or four, to the presence of a puzzle, I now like to call the frogs under the bed they should disturb our readerly sleep. Should be attentive to strange noises under the text. Okay, I'm happy to hear, I think I hear some squirming out there uh, where my reading or readings are thought a bit fanciful. I don't really insist on any particular one of them, but I do insist on an indeterminacy that whatever line we choose to read into the space between lines 12 and 13, it is not simply a matter of interpretation. It is, though a bit indeterminate in shape, very much part of the story, as much a part as any explicit sentence in the story, perhaps even more a part for being somewhat set apart. That was a pun, not a good one. You will see that this fact of the text, as I claim it to be, makes silliness out of the insistence that we must cling to the literal meaning of what is written. Here is something not written to which we must cling. So logically, I suppose I should have said this fact makes silliness out of the insistent that we must cling only to the literal meaning of what is written. Here is something written to which we must cling, uh, something not written to which we must cling. It is a piece of the historical sense of the text, as are all the other narrative notes that God did this, Moses did that, Pharaoh said such, and such. This view of what's going on also makes hash out of the notion that incongruities in the text reveal a lousy cut and paste job. They are now the point of the story, or at least this one is. 
I want to enlarge our view a bit. What kind of a thing is it we are reading? What kind of a written thing? Maybe a larger consideration will help solidify some of what I'm saying. Let me say that, roughly speaking, the story of the Ten Plagues seems to me to be a tall tale, mostly a tall tale, a particular kind of tall tale, perhaps the only one of its particular kind. I haven't read widely in the literature of tall tales, but it seems to be a tall tale told with something of a vengeance. Someone is the butt of these jokes. Egyptians, nominally. Babylonians, probably. Perhaps you can imagine a group of slaves escaped from Egypt, amusing themselves in the desert, telling themselves this story. Or perhaps someone among a people recently settled in a land of milk and honey, working up a story about the idiots they escaped from. To me, it feels more like a tale told by a people still underneath a power which they mock. A subject people telling a thinly veiled story, highlighting the stupidity of their masters, asserting their own superiority and the superiority of their God. I think the conventions of such a tale do not require that the protagonist be admirable, only that he get the better of the adversary. Nor do the purposes of such a tale require that the law of non-contradiction govern events. I know some of you wanted a fourth choice on the quiz, D, none of the above, but I'm going to try to persuade you away from that doer view. Can you recall the first plague? Moses or Aaron stretched out their jointly owned staff and struck the waters of the river and all of the waters of Egypt changed to blood. Then the magicians did the same. Wait, the same? They turned rivers of blood into rivers of blood? Consider the plague on the livestock, the fifth plague. Yahweh kept his word. The next day, all the Egyptian livestock died. Then in the seventh plague, all the livestock not brought under cover again die in a horrendous hailstorm. And then when God sets out after the firstborn, he includes the firstborn of the cattle. They die. That's three times. <laughs> this may be pure burlesque, or it may be something more. Uh, and I want to add one more example, probably don't need it. The green things in the fifth plague. The hail fell and struck down everything in the fields, struck all the crops in the fields, shattered every tree in the fields. And then, a couple of plagues later, come the locusts, who devoured all the green stuff in the land and all the fruit of the trees, the trees that have already been shattered. And here we have a slight concession to the law of non-contradiction, but only very slight. The locusts devoured all the green stuff in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. So the hail had not really struck down everything. The tale teller knows that a tale is being told, that the tale is a tiny bit inconsistent, but he recognizes too that the purposes of the tale do not require that there be nothing contradictory in it. Now, clearly, a seeker of sources would have a field day with these features. 
the difference between what Moses offered to pray for and what actually happened could easily be assigned to a difference between two slightly variant plague cycles. The apparent contradictions in the shattered fruit trees, the repeatedly dying cattle, the blood river turned into a blood river, these two could be argued as evidence of multiple authors at work. I think they are evidence of conventions belonging to the genre tall tale. Tall tale, yes, but not entirely. With the ninth plague comes darkness. It comes over the reader of the tale at a point where the accumulated impossibilities have almost overwhelmed their narrator. He too knows the point of his story, but there are only so many lies that you can tell even in the service of truth. The darkness serves to announce a change of tone. No more humor. The next event after the darkness will be darker still. After darkness covers the face of the earth for three days, Moses delivers the final promise of God. All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. The firstborn of Pharaoh, the firstborn of the maidservants, firstborn of the cattle, but not the firstborn of the Hebrews. I think we need a little theodicy here. We have left the realm of the tall tale and its humorous implausibilities. With the tenth plague, we are talking about human death. And I think we become more somber, asking ourselves question li questions like, who thinks or assumes without thinking that this really happened? And asking ourselves questions like, what kind of a God is it who works this way to get his will? What kind of people would follow such a God? What kind of book is it that would revel in the telling of what we might call skirting human blasphemy, a holocaust? But after all, perhaps some light shines through the darkness of the ninth plague. The first through ninth plagues have this in common. They are not imaginary. Rivers do turn red and undrinkable, Amphibians do invade homes built along riverbanks. Mosquitoes do pester, annoy, and sicken those who live near water. Gadflies swarm, plagues of boils break out. Dwellers living near deserts see their crops fall to locusts and perhaps to hail. In the regions of the Nile and the regions of the two great rivers, great clouds of dust sometimes swirl in and obscure the sky, and darkness rules the day. These are common afflictions of real humans living in a particular place. As regards the tenth plague, everywhere on earth the firstborn children die. Not, to be sure, all at once on a given day, at the word from a leader of a slave revolt, but all firstborn do surely die and the second born, and the third. Only the universal fact of death for us humans, the universal plague, makes the telling of this story a human and permissible act of speech. It is otherwise humorous crudities, rhythmic repetitions, and moral lessons aside, something of a horror. But the text does offer us a small bit of hope. 
The God who demands the death of the Egyptian firstborn apparently also demanded the death of the Hebrew firstborn, but he was bought off in the Passover by the blood of a lamb. In the days to follow their departure, the Hebrews would offer the firstborn, and it seems to be the firstborn son, to God, but not sacrifice him to God, but instead redeem him, buy him back, by offering God a sacrificial substitute. This is Exodus 13, 14. The story of the plagues then leads up to and points up the need for and the impossible hope of redemption from death. All right, that's part one. Part two will be about five minutes. And have we cleared the hall of all the unbaptized? Excellent. Baptism, of course, is in Christian typology, the experience in which the Christian is baptized into the death of Jesus, the redemptive death. I want to point to a place in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm not writing this down because, because. Chapter 10, Jesus leads his 12 into the Transjordan. Various things happen there on the very spot where Moses allowed the bill of divorce to be promulgated. Jesus overrides him. Uh, people come up to him thinking to join him and then because they are rich, they go away. Yeah. And then comes a very strange passage with a gap in it, and I'm asking you to find the gap. It's at 10.32. They were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of them. They were in a daze, and those who followed were apprehensive. Once more, Taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Now we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man is about to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the pagans, who will mock him and spit at him and scourge him and put him to death, and after three days he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him. Master, they said to him, we want you to do us a favor. He said to them, what is it you want me to do for you? They said to him, allow us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I must drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I must be baptized? They replied, we can. Jesus said to them, the cup that I must drink, you shall drink. And with the baptism with which I must be baptized, you shall be baptized. But as for seats at my right hand or my left, these are not mine to grant, 
they belong to those to whom they have been allotted. When the other ten heard this, they began to feel indignant with James and John. So Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that among the pagans the so-called rulers lorded over them, etc. It's a very familiar text, probably. Primed by the example of what I consider a gap in the sequence in Exodus, are you able to suggest that there is a gap in this sequence? And if so, how is it to be filled? Jesus takes the twelve aside. Again. What happens next? Two of them come up to him. How can two come up to him, two of the twelve, if he has taken them aside from the crowd? They can do that only if Jesus has gone on ahead before them. Uh, well, I mean, there might be other scenarios, but that seems to me the reasonable one. The gap is something like, and Jesus went ahead and crossed the Jordan River. And then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him. Notice Mark is keeping track of how many people there are. That's two people. How many are left on the other side? Twelve minus two? Ah, ten. They come in and come up to Jesus, which they could not do if they had been taken aside and were still with Jesus. The Greek is parallabon. It's uh, occurred two previous times in the text. It is the standard Septuagint translation of the verb for what the frogs did when they came up out of the river. They came up. Uh, Anabinon is the word for coming up out of a river, coming into a new territory. It's also going uphill. But they're not really going uphill because they haven't reached Jericho yet. So they, they can't be seriously climbing. My claim, and you will buy the book when it comes out, please, is uh, that the Gospel of Mark is a very tricky gospel with concealed story reality in it which would be delivered probably, I imagine, to the baptized on the occasion of their baptism, and it would be pointed out to them that however good readers they were, they had missed this. They had been carried along by their late-night vigil, their eyes were sleepy, but you look what the topic is. The topic is baptism, drinking from a cup, the topic is sitting in throne chairs. Where did Elijah's, where did the chariot throne descend to pick up Elijah? Right at the Jordan. So James and John at the Jordan come across, talk to Jesus about getting a seat on the chariot throne right there at the Jordan side. Now, this I know is a fairly brave claim, but other features in Mark 
comport with the notion that the stories are told to perplex and that there are matters hidden. And Jesus himself, in the parable of the sower, takes it upon himself to begin explaining that parable. And I imagine that someone in days gone by, someone like me, someone, well, someone not like me, but some, someone officially uh, bound up with the liturgical practice of the church would break open the scripture and reveal this kind of reading between the lines, which is an absolute essential part of the story of the Gospel of Mark. And that concludes my remarks.